This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton. I have an activist and musician with me today who, this is the first time I'm getting the chance to meet him, but he's done a really remarkable journey, is that he's from Sweden, and he walked from Sweden to Palestine. Welcome to the show, Benjamin Lada. How are you? Hi, thank you. I'm good. I'm very good. So how many miles was this walk you did? So it was around 5,000 kilometers. I'm not from the U.S. I'm not sure how many miles that is. <laughs> what sparked you to do this, to walk 5,000 kilometers, which I think is around 2,000-something miles, but I don't know. I'm not a math person. What encouraged you to do this? Yeah, I think anyone familiar with the suffering of the Palestinian people and the just uh, brutal occupation wants to do something about it. And what I find is that most people, uh, unfortunately, just don't know what is going on inside of Palestine. So I just wanted to raise awareness. And I figured walking would be, uh, by the virtue of it being extremely difficult and tough, it would raise some awareness, just the act in itself. And then I would get a chance to talk about Palestine and the human rights abuses. Actually, that might be a good place to start this conversation. I'm a Assuming most people know from previous episodes about the issues going on with the Israeli occupation of Palestine, but can you give just a brief update in case I have any new listeners who haven't heard much of the backstory? <laughs> okay, a brief version would as be... As brief as possible. I, I know there's some a thousand years of history for me in uh, five minutes. But. Let's start in 47 and 48 with the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, where roughly a million people were driven from their homes by gunpoint, lots of massacres and uh, about 500 villages and cities raised to the ground and destroyed. And 80% uh, of Palestine occupied by Israel. And then 20 years later, the rest of Palestine becomes occupied and an additional 300,000 people are driven from their homes. And uh, 50 years later, we are here today when Palestinians are living under occupation with no rights under a separate legal system. They're living under martial law with house demolitions, children being arrested, torture in prisons, no freedom of speech, obviously, nightly raids, and uh, the biggest open-air prison in Gaza where two million people are living without electricity, food, or water under occupation. Right. These people have no way of getting, of sustaining themselves. They're surrounded by blockades and electricity. They have no electricity. They have no way of getting necessary, just basic human survival things like shelter. Yeah, inside of Gaza. And that's why they have been protesting since March 30th, every single Friday. And to this day, roughly 20,000 people have been injured, half by live ammunition. Uh, Israel have snipers on the border shooting people that are demonstrating, uh, journalists, kids, paramedics, and uh, just unarmed protesters. Uh, I think around 180 people up to this point have uh, been killed by sniper fire so far. So when you finished up your walk, you planned to end in occupied Palestine, but Israel would not allow you to go into those areas, correct? No, they would not. You know, uh, Monsters thrive in the dark and they shun the light, the light of transparency. And this is the reason, I think, that uh, they passed a new law forbidding uh, photography and videos of soldiers because they don't want these stories to get out. And uh, obviously, since they are tracking activists and then they don't like people like me or others talking about the human rights situation inside of Palestine, 
they don't want us to come inside and see more and share more of these stories. So on the border, I was interrogated for six hours, loads of questions. They wanted to know the name of every Palestinian I knew, the name of everyone I was going to meet inside, the place of every place I was going to visit, like everyone I was affiliated with. They wanted my passwords to my social media. They wanted to see my messages. Of course, they didn't give them any of that. And uh, so they denied me entry. They would have denied me entry anyway. Uh, my good friend, Ariel Gold, who is a Jewish-American woman, who even had a visa from the Israeli embassy. When she arrived at the Tel Aviv airport due to her activism, she's also speaking about the human rights situation. She's an anti-war activist. They didn't allow her either. So it's not a question of uh, what faith you adhere to or who you are. It's just a question of if you're speaking for human rights, which naturally entails condemning the Israeli human rights abuses, then uh, they will not let you in or they will give you a really, really rough time. So they held you for eight hours, you said, of questioning? Six hours. Six hours. And what kind of, you know, that seems very, like, terrifying in a way. I know I would be very scared if someone was holding me that, uh, as, you know, viewing me as an enemy and holding me for six hours for questioning. Were you threatened at all or was it just, you know? No, I wasn't threatened. Like, uh, I wasn't scared either because I know due to my Swedishness, it would be a big problem for them because they... Obviously, they do profiles, so they know what kind of person I am, and they know that I'm the kind of person that talks a lot to a lot of people. And uh, so they kept it nice. But if you're Palestinian, and if you have no voice, I met one man, they uh, undressed him naked and made him stand up for six hours in a room where people would come and go. A Palestinian man. So obviously, no one will hear his story. And uh, they humiliate Palestinians in a a whole other dimension. So I guess that brings to my next question of what kind of reception did you get along the journey? What countries did you visit on your walk? So I visited 13 countries, Sweden, Germany, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and finally almost Palestine. And uh, I had, well, different meetings on the road, obviously. I was walking with a huge Palestinian flag all the way. So many meetings with the police. The police would come and stop me almost every single day in most countries. Just uh, for carrying the, the Palestinian flag? Yeah, it's difficult to know exactly why. I think it's a combination of reasons. Maybe that's one of them. Another one would be that they assumed I was a refugee. Third one would be that people would just call them for whatever reason. When they saw me walking on the road, maybe they thought it was looked suspicious. But uh, yeah, lots of police just for walking. It's kind of interesting. And uh, obviously I would meet many people just being curious as to who I was and what I was doing. And uh, let me tell you this, that people are nice. People don't realize this, but people are beautiful and kind and generous in every country I visited. I visited many countries in my life. And everywhere you go, people are nice in general. And they face the same problems. Everyone is talking about the corrupt politicians, about housing crisis. Everywhere you go, people talk about the same things. And they enjoy the same things, sitting down for a coffee or tea or a beer or whatever drink and uh, talking. So I met wonderful people all the time. 99% were nice. And of course, I met some bad people also. I can imagine. The majority of people in all countries are nice. And they're afraid of their neighbors always. So people in Croatia due to their history with Serbia, they would kind of warn me a little bit about Serbia. They would say, they're good people, but you know, watch out (laughs) when you go there. And then I went, and Croatian people are wonderful. And Serbian people are wonderful, I found, when I went there. 
they would warn me a little bit about Bulgaria, you know. You should take care when you go to Bulgaria. Not that they're not nice, but you know, you should watch your back. <laughs> then I came to Bulgaria. And so every country was telling you about people. the next country to watch yourself. <laughs> Ex exactly. And these countries all neighbor each other. So when I came to Bulgaria, it neighbors Turkey. And they told me about Turkey. You know, you should really watch out if you go there. <laughs> I come to Turkey. It's the most amazing place ever. People are wonderful. And the, from Turkey, I was going to Lebanon. And Turkish people will tell me, like, you know, the Middle East, there, you got to watch your back. Lebanese people are great. <laughs> so it's always yeah, the same. It's so interesting that, like, everyone, that it, it's so universal. Like, being in America in the current political climate, you feel like we're the only ones that have this irrational fears of other, like we have here. But it's really yeah, kind it's of a, universal that we're, yeah, everyone's being divided. Phenomenon. Unfortunately, yeah. And I think what we can do to combat this is to meet that other, whoever it is we might be afraid of, if it's uh, the Muslim people or the Jewish people or the Mexican people or whoever it is you might have prejudice against, because we all have prejudice, we need to face this. And we need to do what we can to combat this, which uh, the best thing we can do is to go and meet and sit down and drink something and talk just as friends <laughs> with the people we are afraid of and we will discover that uh, they are just like us and there's nothing to be scared of. Yeah, that's a great message, it really is. So how do you think that you raised some awareness? Did you have people that you managed to have a conversation with that maybe were uninformed or had an opinion that you were able to alter their opinion in some way about what's yeah, going on? Yeah, I think I managed to raise awareness to some extent. I would do lectures at universities. I would do demonstrations in every city. I would try to be active, you know. That's why I'm in the U.S. at the moment also continuing on and just uh, going to different universities and campuses and organizations and churches and mosques and everywhere just to talk about Palestine and raise awareness about what's going on there. I'm doing my best, you know. Obviously, I haven't. It's an ongoing process and everything we can do in life is just our best and if we are really trying hard then we can feel satisfied a lot of people when they measure activism they usually ask for results but uh, for activists it's uh, you need to have another take on it if you just focus on results well my result would be no more suffering for anyone in the region or in the world that would be nice world peace no global warming and these things end of racism sexism end of the occupation well, if that's my goal, and you ask me today, did you like, did you have a result? But well, no, <laughs> there's still an occupation of Palestine, but I'm doing more than uh, I could have, or than other people maybe. And that's how you should measure yourself. Like, it's, are you doing something? And if you are trying, then that's good. And if you are not trying hard enough, then you can, uh, then you can think about what more you can do. So I reached a few million people through the social media videos. But that's not enough, obviously. We still need to do more. And it's a process of being in it for the long term, for the long run. A lot of people do short projects and burn themselves out and then take very long risks where they don't do much. But it's important to stay healthy and happy and just continue on with the activism because it's a long-term project making this world a little better place. Absolutely. That reminds me, there's a friend of mine uh, who has a hummingbird tattoo, and there's a, it's sort of an allegory of a hummingbird. There was a large forest fire, and all the animals were running away, and the hummingbird would go and, like, collect a little bit of water in its beak and come over and drop it on the fire, and all the other animals yeah. are like, oh, you're going to burn your wings. You're not accomplishing anything. You're so small. What can you possibly do? And the hummingbird was like, well, I'm doing the best that I can can 
And that's exactly. what we all need to do. We all need to do the best that we can. And that's the only choice we have. That might <laughs> change the world. You know, it could be something that you have no idea what kind of action is going to spark that change. Yeah, and we have to be humble. We can't predict the future. So we can just hope that our actions will actually have an impact. And we never know if we don't try. And what other option do we have other than trying? So what were some of your, like, most interesting moments that you've had on the road when you were doing this walk <laughs> or most challenging, whatever stories you'd like to share? Well, there are many stories. I was invited to the Croatian parliament. That was interesting. I became good friends with a politician there, Ivan Pernar. I later invited him to Palestine. Uh, obviously, I didn't go to Palestine, but I managed to get some money for him to have a tour inside there and meet Ahed Tamimi, make some videos and raise some awareness for the Croatian people. It was very good. I met the SWAT team in Austria because someone called and said I was a terrorist, I think. So a lot of heavy armed cops showed up. That was not very nice. I uh, went to 10 different refugee camps in Lebanon, met many people with uh, amazing and tragic and sad stories. Uh, met one old Palestinian man that uh, was forced from his home in Jaffa in 1948. He was eight years old at the time, he was born 1940. And uh, he went around in Palestine as a refugee. Eventually he came to Nablus where he settled for a few years until 1967 when the Israelis came again and occupied Nablus and drove him out along with a lot of other people. He came to a refugee camp in Jordan on the border or he wound up there. Uh, but there was some resistance from that refugee camp, Palestinian resistance. So uh, the Israelis bombed the camp and he had to flee once again from the refugee camp. And now I found him in this other refugee camp in uh, Lebanon. And uh, there he sits. And uh, they, one thing he told me, that his only wish was to go back to his land so he could die on his land and not sit in a refugee camp and die. You know. Can you talk a little bit about the scale of these refugee camps? Like, I think a lot of people don't understand how massive some of these camps are. Can you talk a little bit about the size and, like, what you saw in these camps? So, uh, most camps in Lebanon are uh, one square kilometer and they're overcrowded. Uh, some of them are bigger. I think the biggest one, Nahel Bered or Ein Helwe, has, I don't remember exactly the number, roughly 100,000 people. There are. Uh, 7 million Palestinian refugees scattered in the world. The biggest uh, Palestinian diaspora is in Chile, half a million Palestinians. Um, in Europe, the biggest diaspora is in Germany, and Sweden has the second biggest Palestinian diaspora. I mean, Palestinians are everywhere. And lots of them are in camps inside of Palestine. 70% of Gaza's uh, population, 2 million, are refugees from what happened in 47, 48. And most camps are, have horrible living conditions, bad infrastructure. Uh, in Lebanon, they aren't allowed to even own property or expand their camps, but the population expands. So they're living extremely crowded, lots of people in one small room. And uh, they don't look like camps as most people would uh, perceive it. Most people imagine refugee camps like tents, but uh, people have been refugees for 70 years. So naturally, they expand their tents into a little home and then they add another story to another floor to their home so it kind of looked like a, just a super poor area right now their camps because they have been there for so long so they evolved into a like tiny neighborhoods 
Right. These are like, you know, during the 40s, that's like our grandparents' age. You know, that, imagine if someone had showed up at your grandparents' home, forced them out at gunpoint, and told them they can never come back. That's kind of what's happening to these people. And I don't think a lot of people really get that, that they're, they were not given any compensation. It's just like, get out. It's not yours anymore. Go find, yeah, and, uh, don't make your way. A lot of times it would be, uh, get out. We, you can come back in a few days, but you have to leave right now. And uh, so a lot of people just locked their doors, brought their keys, thought they were going to come back in a few days. But uh, events didn't turn out that way. And that was never the plan. But uh, it's difficult to expel a people from their land. You can't say you can never come back because then, uh, or you can if you have uh, lots of people with guns. So what they did was they carried out some really horrible massacres in Deryasin, for example, just uh, killing and raping. So these, and then sent some people running from there so they could share these stories of the atrocities. And then when the Israeli army would uh, be on their way to the next village or the next city, I mean, people knew that they are coming to kill us. So naturally they fled. Or the uh, British soldiers that were there also sometimes would say that, uh, you, you know, you just have to leave and we have to settle the situation and you can come back later, just tricking them into leaving. And then they couldn't come back. So they're still and waiting. They lost you know? everything. Like, you know, even the people that yep. thought that they got to come back, like, oh, okay, we'll just go for the night. And of course, they never were allowed back. So they lost. No, 70 everything. years later, so they're where still are we waiting. These people to go, you know, like, this is a large part of uh, what's going on here in the U.S. with not wanting to accept refugees. Like, think about if this has been your family. Just think about, and no one would want to allow you to come in. You did nothing wrong. You were kicked off of your land because someone else wanted it and you have nowhere to go with not a dime to your name. What would that situation feel like to you? And maybe we should think about that when discussing our foreign policy here in the United States, that we need to be moral and ethical for people that have been driven away from everything they've known for generations now. Yeah, I think everyone could use a little bit more compassion. And it's difficult sometimes, but we should put ourselves in others' shoes. And uh, like the only thing we can do is show compassion and try our best to make the world a little bit better. And if enough people do that, we won't see these problems. Uh, yeah, and I think what you're absolutely right on with the get to know each other and see everyone's kind of the same. We all want the same things. And, you know, and if I you think, get rid of that thing in this country, people aren't traveling so much, right? I heard some story about very few people even having passports. Not that they aren't allowed to have passports, they just don't bother to go and get them because they're not traveling. Oh, and- yeah, that's absolutely true. Like, in my even personal experience, I've, you know, gone to a couple of other countries. And like, when I was planning a trip to Italy, my parents were literally afraid for me to go to Italy. Like, oh, my God. Country. <laughs> and they're like, well, why are you going somewhere like that? Why don't you just go on a cruise somewhere? And I'm like, no, yeah. no, it's kind of a beautiful, you know, lots of great things, lots of places I want to see. But there, you know, is, there is no substitute for experience. There is no substitute. You can read all you want, and that's good. But uh, if you never interact and if you never see an experience for yourself, there is still a lack in the knowledge. Yep, and I think that that is, you know, I mean, most a lot of people don't have the money to travel. You know, traveling is definitely Expensive, challenging in a country this large to get to another country other than maybe Canada or Mexico. And I think roughly half of the people here live in correct? Oh, in the sorry, US. I heard Chris Hedges in an interview yesterday saying that close to half of the American people are living in poverty or close to poverty. 
Which is yeah, I, I don't know if it's half, but it's very, I mean, and close to poverty is definitely that I think it was 40% of Americans have had some sort of a problem meeting some sort of material need, be it I mean, food, clothing, shelter, well, medical when care. When you have this, and maybe your listeners aren't aware that the, the U.S., recently under Obama signed the biggest transfer of money in uh, the, con the history of this country from uh, the US to Israel, $38 billion, the Memorandum of Understanding, which translates into roughly $10 million every single day directly to the Israeli army. So uh, right. when, you, when you have this, and then uh, I've been traveling around a little bit, and uh, there are lots of people that are complaining about a lot of social issues like healthcare, like student debt, like homelessness. I've seen loads of homeless people, but still you can manage to find the money, $10 million every single day to send to a foreign country's army, which they are using for occupation and human rights abuses. I mean, it's just staggering. Yeah, it really does feel like we're living in some kind of upside down world where morality is just so way out of whack nowadays. I mean, not that it always hasn't been, but it's just becoming blatantly obvious to people day by day, I think. So maybe, yeah. maybe people waking up will be what sparks the change. And that's why it's so important, people like you getting your message out there about yeah, what it you're all starts. It starts with awareness because we can't solve problems we aren't aware about. So if someone wasn't aware of the $10 million a day to Israel, then obviously they can't say anything about it either. But now that everyone knows, then we have to say something about it if we don't agree with it. Some people might agree also, of course. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm still in the very small minority of people uh, that either know about it and feel that what we're doing is wrong, that we should not be supporting a uh, genocide uh, state or an apartheid state, you uh, know, like, even just saying those words, I guarantee you some people will be very angry about this podcast. Yeah, well, you have to remember that the UN quite recently released a report condemning Israel's policies as apartheid, and apartheid is a, a system of laws which... Uh, discriminates against one ethnic groups and make one ethnic group dominate like the rest. And this UN report was released, but the UN put mass, the US put massive pressure on the UN to uh, pull out the report, not because of any uh, factual errors. No one was challenging the contents of the report, but uh, the US didn't want their closest ally to be criticized. So they applied their pressure probably a lot of things under the table. We don't know what threats were made. And uh, the report is still out to read, but it's not on the UN's website anymore. Wow. So if anyone thinks that it's too, too much to call Israel an apartheid state, I would suggest to read this report and to read about apartheid. There's a lot of people saying that Israel is much worse than apartheid because apartheid needed the black population in South Africa to be exploited as a labor force, whereas in the case of Palestine and Israel, uh, most of Israel's policies just want to kick the Palestinians out, just want them gone. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. I'll try to find that report and link it in the show notes if I can find it. It's easy to find. So people can read that themselves. If they don't want to believe you or believe me, then they can look at that themselves. I'll try to find that for the show notes. And hopefully, as you guys are listening to this, it's in the show notes there that you can click on and see what we're talking about. It's been and, uh, It's also interesting to note that the U.S. has vetoed 
44 UN resolutions condemning uh, Israel's human rights violations and uh, calling Israel to stop its aggression uh, throughout the years. And I think there has been 77 UN resolutions released against Israel's aggression and against their human rights violations. And these resolutions would read like, the UN calls upon Israel to stop violating the human rights of the Palestinian people, and then the US would come and veto that. Or another resolution, the UN calls upon Israel to respect the Muslim holy places inside uh, Jerusalem, for example, and then the US would veto that. The US clearly saying that no, Israel does not have to respect the Muslim holy places inside Jerusalem and these things. So it's quite absurd if you start reading human rights reports, UN resolutions, then you will see what. Then you will see yeah, a little bit more. This is not a big ask. Treat people with basic <laughs> human rights is not a big <laughs> ask that these people are asking for here. No, and just ponder that the U.S. uses its veto against simple things like this. Yeah, yeah. We're, I don't know. I can't even explain what's going on in my country most of the time. <laughs> that's why I'm an activist, and that's why we're here trying to spark a revolution as need be, and trying to elevate these voices that do not get mainstream media coverage. You do not hear about this on the mainstream media enough. And when you do hear it, it's like, oh, well, the Palestinians attacked the Israelis. Like, that's the only side yes. you hear on the news. You do not hear anyone else's side. And those who control the message are controlling the narrative. And the APAC lobby, the Israeli lobby, I would suggest everyone to just go on YouTube and listen to every president just going to this APEC lobby and uh, just competing in how, in how unconditional their support for Israel can be. Some are saying that even when Israel does something wrong, we will stand with them. We will stand with them no matter what. Every single US president and both parties get donations from this lobby. It has massive influence. You can read the John Mersheimer's report or book, uh, the US and the Israeli lobby because they have massive influence over your politics and your policies. All right, that is about time for today. Did you have any last words you'd like to add before we wrap it up? I would suggest everyone to go and see for themselves and to raise their awareness, to start reading because knowledge is power and without knowledge about issues, then we can't be an active and effective voice in resolving issues. And we have to be the wind that changes the politics and the policies. We can't wait for politicians to save the world. If they would have, they would have done so already. And we still have problems and the problems are multiplying. This is not by coincidence. This is by people taking action to make the world a bit worse in some ways. And if we just stand by and let them do that, then the world will go in an undesired direction. But if we also take action, if we do what we can, that's all we can do. And when enough people do it, then we might see some progress and some progressive policies and the progress towards the world we want without these horrible things happening in a lot of places. We can stop that because if not us, then who? That's a great closing message. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope my listeners have learned something, have had their minds broadened a little bit about what's going on. And it's really just been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You can follow me on social media. I post everything under the hashtag walk to Palestine. Walk, hashtag walk to Palestine. To my listeners, thank you so much again for joining us today. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.